0: mm mm-hmm.
1: I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Devin Bohm from West Hartford, Connecticut. She's a poet, writer, educator with degrees from Smith College and Fairfield University. And she has a new book just released in November 21, Careful Cartography from Cornerstone Press. And we're going to be talking about it, of course, and hearing poems from it. So, Devin, I'm so glad you could do this.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, I'm glad that enough electricity is working on both ends. This is is early February when the big storm came through the Northeast folks, and I was just wondering if everything was going to connect, and it did. So let me start off with something pretty basic. The title, Careful Cartography. Um, I do wonder where that came from.
2: Sometimes when you go to write a poem, you get the first line first or something to that effect, but... um... I had already written the title poem and it had a different title. Um, And the words Careful Cartography kept coming into my head. Um, When I was in graduate school writing my thesis, one of my professors, Carol Ann Davis, who was my mentor at Fairfield University, she pointed out that a lot of my poems were about maps or about searching. And the phrase Careful Cartography got in my head and it ended up getting worked into the poem that's the title poem. Um, because I couldn't let it go. And I knew it was going to be the title of the collection, but it wasn't in any of the poems. So I had to make it work, but it actually made the poem a lot stronger yeah. and the collection stronger. So it worked out. Okay,
1: cool. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd have a good reason because to the person coming into it, me, I wasn't sure why why exactly, though you do go from place to place in sections of the book, you know, from from here in the stage, your year in London and other other interesting things time in Boston. Where would you like to start?
2: Um, I could read the title poem just to give um, some context to the whole collection. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that will give some more context to why careful cartography as well, um, as opposed to less careful cartography, I suppose.
1: (laughs) Sloppy cartography
2: sloppy cartography all the borders are like messed up (laughs) (laughs) no we're trying to very exactly map something here for sure so um and yeah this is how the book opens up it's careful cartography the first time I died was in my mother's belly they had to scrape me out of her like they were emptying a cantaloupe of all that was good to eat they found me still alive they found me screaming I splattered my father's glasses with blood and he fainted, pitched down hard to that mess of linoleum and whatever viscera came with me. I didn't mean to hurt them, but I am not someone who was born knowing a word like dishonor and no matter how many books I devour starving, I've always spit out that pith, those seeds. I wanted to grow up to be a cartographer, but I ended up a writer. My maps are harder to follow, Heavier to read, but they are still trying to lead us somewhere better. Even before I was born, I had to command attention. I won't pretend to remember, remembrance is too precious for that, but I can imagine. I stopped my own heart. I am the kind of person who will always find a language to suit her. I have been me, the hollow place for the conversation, all communications to echo long before my tongue grew in. I studied maps before I learned how to go anywhere. It has never been about going somewhere. All of you who crave exquisite exotic adventure, I have a secret to tell. You'll still be there wherever you go. This makes all places the same. And if you're happy, home. I wasn't born happy. I was born as I am, with the careful cartography in my veins aching for home. I have kept dying the way I've kept reading, like a plow whose furrows hope to be deep enough to seed. Herbs, flowers without thorns so the bees can make me honey, can pollinate, Some more can blossom, grow. I'm not dying just to get your interest. I am dying because sometimes maps are not enough. No matter how uncharted the voyage, I have made it this far, alive and still screaming. I will never mean to hurt you, but I have places to be and I have to find a way to speak them. It is the way I was born.
1: Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) No, I I realized somewhere in either your website or here someplace, someone mentioned maps as what you use to figure out how to get somewhere, right? And that's quite obvious. And then I realized that if I'm left alone, when I think about maps, I just think about them as presenting what is. Like, here's the lay of the land, not how to get, though I use them all to get places. But I, I don't know. Does that mean anything?
2: <laughs> well, I think when we think of the word cartography, it's about map making. So it is about trying to chart what's there, um, which is why the sections in the book are kind of like the places I have been. But then the writing of the book is really, me trying to figure out what those places meant to me and how they're forming me as a person. The, the subtitle of the uh, the book is Mapping an Autobiography. So it's trying to lead yourself somewhere and it leads to the last section of the book, which is home, as mm-hmm. opposed to, which is like not a real place, right? It's an ambiguous concept. And um, For me in the book and in real life, uh, home is a person, not a place, which is why it's not denoted by being in West Hartford, Connecticut, but by right. the
1: concept of home. Oh. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, it just was, a, to me, a surprising realization. I went, oh, you look at the map because you want not know how to get there. I'm like, wait, no. I'm... And I do when I'm out in the world, I guess, but when I'm not out in the world, I'm just looking at a map just to just see what the scoop is, what's going on here, you know?
2: Yeah, and if you're drawing your own maps, then you're creating yeah. that meaning
1: true 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 i love it yeah i'm thinking about how did you write the poem or how do you write your poems but i think i like to ask it like this do you remember any one or two like big ideas big good statements that somebody made to you back when you were in school about how to write poems a big admonition you know like always have a dog in it you know that's silly but you know what i mean
2: yeah, I think the two things that I try to keep in mind to this day um, are both from Carolyn Davis who I already mentioned. She was my thesis advisor at okay. Fairfield um, and she's one of my favorite poets as well. So lots of inspiration from her. But um, she once told us that in a workshop that sometimes in the poem, like in real life, the door might have been blue, but sometimes the door needs to be read in the poem for the poem. And it's that capital T truth, like the truth of the poem, the Mm -hmm. core of it, the heart of it isn't about the details. It's about communicating what you're trying to communicate. And sometimes you have to make like little changes in order for your reader to understand those details, because real life isn't a poem. Real life isn't art uh, or is meant to help us interpret real life. And then secondarily, she also... uh, really introduced me to the concept through Larry Levis's work of having multiple threads within a poem. So I try to make sure that none of my poems are about one thing, which I think there's beautiful ways to do that. Like Elizabeth Bishop's uh, Fish, or there's so many poems that are about one suspended moment in time. But generally for me, my poems are about multiple things happening at once and how that's how metaphor works, right? Like the comparison of those two things brings you deeper meaning for both of them
1: all right always like to get that in because everybody (laughs) listening out there now you have a couple more tips a couple more ideas to consider you know that's that's really really cool I like the multiple threads I mean it's obvious when you read novels
2: 100% I mean (laughs) otherwise you you don't just hear one (laughs) linear story with no deviations whatsoever because then you wouldn't have any context
1: okay well um Well, where would you like to move to now? You want to go to Boston? You want to stay home? Go fishing Um, with dad?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in um, San Diego. So I moved from San Diego to the Northeast for school. And then I did the year in London, as you said. Um, And speaking to the threads, I would really love to read um, a poem from my childhood section, um, the San Diego section um, called Forgiveness. And I don't think I've ever read this poem out loud, but it is the poem I'm proudest of. And I've, that I've ever written, so I would love to read it for
1: you. Super, yes.
2: <laughs> so this is forgiveness. In the two years between my father's death, his lung cancer, and your almost loss, your heart attack, I began to see signs, beacons silvering the dark white cigarette papers, white paleness of fingers, white coats, white eggshells in the white sink with no eggs to show for them, white sweeter than its own sugar that white of mild oblivion. You think you're owed my forgiveness because you're my mother now, but what about then? Rule number one, all poets are monsters. Your grief made you a poet. Your grief made one of me too. I became a poet the day you made me limp back into the metallic scented dusk of the hospital to see another parent spread out across the whiteness of sheets like a stain. Nicotine yellow and old bruise come to meet me. I began a habit then I'll never shed, I mean people by the way I think believe me. In death, by accident, of their own volition, selfishly, selfishly, selfishly. Rule number two, all poets are optimists. In these past two decades, we have become geniuses of the distracted barb, of inflicting pain on the most tender swath of flesh. We have checked in together to the hospice of living with each other. We have never walked on the same sand again, and though you have never smoked another cigarette, my name for you is still white smoke. I still see it hanging above your head, a brain fire, misfire, wetting the white hairs at your scalp as if with dew. If I was fair, I'd throw stones at my father's ghost as well, but what joy can one grasp in yelling at the dead? Rule number three, all poets are sadists. It's the same amount of joy I hold when I dog about after you. I'd like to think I could never make my mother cry, but if I'm being honest, we bring each other out with each crack of the neck, each blink, each twist of hair, and each eyeballed moment. If I'm being honest, some part of me wants to, wants you to feel like I do. Rule number four, all poets are masochists. The skin on the back of your hands is shivery paper husked in half, gutted. Those veins trace a history of waving pain away, of gathering it back to us again. They are blue, purple, they are bruises. They are shadows of the same bird wings etched beneath my sleeping eyelids, the ones that wake me. I know that, I know it all, but, but isn't my inability to forgive you a kind of love? You mean too much to me. I've kept you only a breath away, an exhalation, a smoke away from me all these long, broken years. I would never show this poem to anyone, I promise. I would never tell what I can still feel you doing to me, forgetting, leaving, so selfishly, selfishly, selfishly. Remember, rule number five, all poets are liars.
1: That's wonderful. Now, I'm going to ask you, with with the understanding it's perfectly okay to compliment yourself, what did you put into that poem that you're just especially happy with? What's, what's in there? Because people can go back and listen again, so I think it can be very useful to, to hear you say some things about that kind of thing.
2: I think there... It's really hard to write the poems you're scared to write, but those are always going to be the poems that mean the most to you. And for me, it's the play of language, the rhythm and the repetition of the rules throughout the way that it like creates an ongoing movement through the poem that I'm proud of on a craft perspective. Mm -hmm. Then on a personal perspective, I wrote a poem that means a lot to me, like processing my my anger as a child at my mother when she almost died after my father died, even though, of course, that's not her fault as an adult. I can see that. But leaning in and processing that emotion was the thing that I think I'm proudest of on a personal yeah. level. But then it's also, there's so much going on, right? There's a lot of rich language and it just feels like it moves on and on and on in this like repetitive, almost like eating you over the head with it way that mm-hmm. feels so appropriate for the sardonic voice of the poem that I'm really proud of at the same time. Form fitting function. And well, you should be.
1: Yeah. No, it's a really, <laughs> really good poem. And yes. And that's that's the thing, the the thing of writing the personally difficult poems. And 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 then in the poem you're saying, I'll never read this to anybody. <laughs> all poets which, are liars which express of course there you go <laughs> beautiful
2: yeah i definitely don't think of myself as a funny poet so the no. fact i could make you laugh a little with that um also definitely a big
1: plus well i think your list poems have some things that if if not that way funny certainly amusing or what do you want to call it you know <laughs> light <laughs>
2: Lighter late, for sure yeah. Lighter. And they're, well,
1: yeah sure <laughs>
2: yeah. and they're throughout the book is kind of like these signposts of where you are or like out in the journey and the mm. if you're moving through the map where you are on that journey you can kind of check in on the narrator which is me as it's an autobiography um sure. through the list poems um because they do develop and they have some repetition within each poem as well so yeah. a lot of poetry books which i love all types of poetry and this is mm-hmm. just not, I decided to do something different. Um, a lot of poetry books, you have those individual poems, but I tried to really make this one kind of long piece at the same time that you can follow mm-hmm. throughout. Yeah.
1: Well, move right, move right along. Let's let's do another <laughs> poem It probably has lies in it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> probably. Um, we can move on into, uh, into London. Um, as you said, I lived there for a year when I was... Um, 20 uh so it's a very formative year to live on your own in a foreign country for Mm -hmm. a year I didn't even like go home at any point during that year I really lived there I worked there um and studied at the same time didn't even travel that much really just like lived in the city um and you know you have a lot of uh relationships during those times of your life that are really formative too that teach you a lot about yourself and that you can be loved that how what you want from love and things. So this is one of the list poems you were talking about. Um, And this one's called Anomalies of the Natural World. You know, like volcanoes, the platypus, electric storms, sinkholes, asteroids, Jupiter's lost stripe, water that flows uphill, the blue people of Kentucky, conjoined twins sharing one heart, fire, the half ounce weight of a soul, that actress with the lips, spring, clouds, back dimples, red algae lakes, red hair, spontaneous human combustion, striped icebergs, double rainbows, the wide, wide Sargasso sea, white ravens, cancer, that kiss three Novembers ago, migrating desert stones, hypnosis, words, communication, language, poetry, you. The way your body generates heat in your sleep, a spot of thunder baldness. Dancing with me in the kitchen to know music, bare feet a brush fire on kitchen tile, your ear to me across distance, time, a heartbeat and stillness, a small tiny punch I feel in my ribs, the cryptozoological miracle of your hands the indefinable thing that happens in the millimeter of space between us between breaths our love that undulates like a jellyfish our creature without brain or teeth
1: what was the relationship to what the college when you were there were they did you have an advisor over there somebody who advised the or they just leave you and tell you to write reports once in a while or how did they do it
2: um yeah i was actually a student at university college london for the year um oh, right. so i had okay. an academic advisor through university oh, okay. college london yeah and i was okay. in the english department which isn't surprising i'm sure um,
1: right.
2: <laughs> um it was an incredible program though the school is completely different in the uk and it was a very um, self-directed experience. And I probably learned more about writing during that year than I did my first years at Smith in a lot of ways, because I was left to figure it out as opposed to being Uh very carefully directed through how to write an essay, which you learn in high school, really. Yeah.
1: Well, so, so you, it was like a normal year of school enrollment, but it was over there in a different school environment and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah. So I did the whole year there. I did some classics courses and like film courses as well, which is really interesting because um, they have complete, I also took American literature while I was in London, which was a very strange Good experience. idea. <laughs> yeah, right. I wanted a different perspective because like I have heard all about the last of the Mohitians in America. So I wanted to hear <laughs> what England had to say about it.
1: Whoa, I wouldn't mind seeing your reading list. I think it would be interesting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of uh a lot of weird old captivity narratives and things, mostly. Yeah, but yeah, yeah.
1: No, I had early a good time. American literature. <laughs> yeah, no, I had a good time with with when my son was in college reading, reading his stuff. You know, we had the he liked the West in literature, and I'd never read the Virginian and some other things like that. I didn't even know Carmack McCarthy for God's sake. Well, you know, you oh. live and learn. <laughs> well, I don't know everything just a few things
2: that's very I like i learn something new every day thank god yeah.
1: well you mentioned <laughs> that on your website actually that you're very devoted to can are you particularly looking at anything now
2: um, um... You know, just expanding um, the kinds of authors I read, I think, is my biggest thing. Um, more perspectives from um, authors of color and uh, authors of different cultures, and in translation as uh-huh. well. Um, I got really into Murakami recently, which I knew very little about Japanese literature, and that led me to a lot of other Japanese authors. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm reading a. I I read. I will read anything it could be terrible honestly I will I just love to read so much um I try to make sure I'm reading things of good quality as well but um I read a lot of young adults and a lot of uh fantasy and things like that in fiction and I'm currently reading um it's a it's a revised concept of like instead of the civil war just ending instead there's like zombies and it's like a young black woman who instead of slavery she's all the Um, Black people have been made to fight the zombies now instead like they've been freed but they've been forced into a new type of enslavement so it's a really interesting take on the American South during what we think of the Reconstruction period Um, and I think really good fantasy reforms our thoughts about certain parts about our own world and that's what this book does called Dread Nation it's really good.
1: Dread Nation?
2: (laughs) Dread D-R-E-A-D yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, well, is there, is there, isn't there a rap group, D-R-E-D? That's why I had to ask. That's all my well. Probably. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, right. that's real. I'm glad I asked that because uh, you told me some new things. Right. So there you go. You day. That's the fun of doing this. Right. Well, why, well, why don't we do one more poem? We got. To, I, I like people to get a good sampling. And this isn't broadcast, so we can do as long, you know, we go as long as we go. So we'll just go over a few minutes and hear another poem. All right. Because I think that'd um, be a good thing.
2: Awesome. Um, let's uh, jump forward to home, the home section one, uh, which is the, the end of the map, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, And it's mainly about, I got married this past June to my husband, who I, I've known for the last decade and is the love of my life. Uh, so the whole last section is about him. Um, and also, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone that really makes you feel your worth, I think there is this element of needing to feel worthy as well. Um, So that's what this poem is kind of about. It's called White Witch Moth. Science can't tell us why moths fly towards our lights. Not for sure. But we humans, we don't need to be sure. We need only to recognize bewilderment to know the truth. We're fucking up the wild with our glow creating mirages that must see miracles, the moon finally found after all that trembling. Who are we to do to them what we do to ourselves? Putting out sugar for hummingbirds and feeders like red long-throated flowers, faux tangerines in a blue glass bowl on my counter telling you, I am a good woman, nurturing. I will feed you with all this honey and little bear figures, the bear letting you know I could have harvested all myself. We are liars. I am a liar. A mustard plant may bloom, but it is not a sunflower. All light can be bright, but all lights don't serve the same purpose. The hospital fluorescence flicker on off, on off. I am waiting to know if we have time yet to make my lies into something like reality. The thunder that is not thunder, but the blare of some television pinches me awake. The pine scent that is not trees but disinfectant leaves me shaking. I could be your good woman. I could be nurturing. I could be both the bouquet and the rosebush if only I'm given the time to become. The moon's uprising path, the white witch moth like a crane reaching upward, the light-soaked moment where my wings, the largest wings in the world, carry me not away but home to you.
1: There you go. Bringing it all back home. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That was lovely. Well, it's been really nice talking to you, Devin. Devin Bohm from West Hartford, Connecticut. Her new book, Careful Cartography, from Cornerstone Press. Uh, She has a website. And uh, you can go there and learn more about her. It has links to some of her poems that have been published. It's a very, very nice website. Very informative. And uh, it was good for me, prepping for this, to get more of your poetry to read. I didn't get time to ask you about Bukowski. Oh, well, (laughs) it's been great. (laughs)
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mondley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetry Spoken Here. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.